Hello there, friends. For this podcast episode, I decided to share with you some of the first pages, the beginning sections of my most recent book, Still Standing. And the subtitle is How I Overcame Guilt, Shame, Hopelessness. Oops, let me start all over. Hello, my friends. In this podcast episode, I decided to share with you some of the sections from my most recent book, Still Standing. And the subtitle is How I Overcame Guilt, Shame, Hopelessness, Devastating Loss, and Paralyzing Fear. And those are really just some of the things that I have overcome. Yes, some of it I still have to deal with on occasion. I don't know if we ever get 100% there. But overcoming doesn't mean you are 100%. It means that it doesn't keep you down anymore. It doesn't rule your life anymore. And so I thought, what a fun thing to do for the next couple of podcast episodes. I'm just going to read. I'm going to read to you. It'll just be like listening to an audiobook while you are in your car, working out, cleaning your house, whatever it is you're doing while you listen to this podcast. I thought it might be fun, even if you've read the book, for you to hear it from my voice and kind of my perspective, since the beginning parts are my story. And I did not share all of my story in here because it would have been a very big book and it would have had a lot of details in it about really, really big challenges (laughs) and maybe just too much more than I needed to share to get my point across. Um, Also, I really didn't want my mother who tried really hard to do her best. I didn't want her to feel bad. So anyway, I am going to start here on page 11. Again, this book is still standing, How I Overcame Guilt, Shame, Hopelessness, Devastating Loss, and Paralyzing Fear. My Journey to Courage. It's not how you start. My life didn't start out on a high note, but I've learned that no matter how I started, I could decide how I finished. Some events occurred without my choice and others had much to do with my decisions. Life is messy and I have chosen to reveal some of the messiness of mine to help you find hope. I want you to believe that you can overcome anything If not for my journey, as painful as some of it has been, I would not be the warrior I am today. Like many people, my childhood was full of challenges. My mom had her first child at 17, and by the time she was 20, she had three children. A couple of years later, she was a single mother, and my father was not super interested in parenthood, nor paying regular child support. I can only imagine how disappointed my mom was in those early years, realizing she'd made a huge mistake. And now she had three kids to raise with little financial or emotional support. Gone were the straight-A students' dreams of college scholarships or much else a little girl might dream about for her future. She was sad much of my early years, and I was worried. I worried about a lot of things in my young life. I could read the newspaper when I was five years old, but my only recollection was a headline about China threatening to bomb the United States. I spent many nights alone in my room, worried and scared. I grew up in the Seattle area of the Pacific Northwest, 
where Boeing was pretty much the only game in town. It was before Microsoft changed the world and made its mark on the Seattle area, which we fondly refer to as the Puget Sound area, since that's the body of water where Seattle and surrounding areas reside. The entire Puget Sound area felt every Boeing upswing and downturn. During one recession, I recall a billboard that read, will the last person leaving Seattle turn out the lights? Times were tough, but mom did her best. She worked many jobs, including a night shift on the kill floor of a meatpacking plant several miles away from where we live. I had a, have a very hard time picturing my neat freak mom standing in blood that came up to the tops of her shoes, but she did what she could to take care of her children. During her meatpacking plant stint, mom brought her ex-sister-in-law to live with us, along with her daughter, my young cousin. It wasn't easy to find trustworthy care for three children at night, so it was a workable solution. It also allowed my aunt to get away from an abusive husband. The problem was the husband knew where we lived. One time he put sugar in the gas tank of our car, which was barely limping along as it were. Other times he would come to our house drunk and mad. One night while mom was at work, he broke into our home and abused my aunt while four terrified kids hid in my brother's bedroom closet. Another time he made the mistake of showing up while my mom was at home and she chased him down the road with a butcher knife until the police arrived. That may seem crazy, and it was, but I always admired my mom for being brave enough to do something crazy to protect her family. Mom established rules and led by example. We had chores at an early age and we were expected to make good grades in school. In the fifth grade, my brother Daryl came home with a D in a class, and after that, I knew I would never bring home a report card with that letter on it. We were expected to be polite, respectful, and clean. Sometimes while mom was doing chores, I would be reminded, just because you're poor doesn't mean you have to be dirty. How much does a can of Comet cost? I believe the answer was 99 cents. She was a strict disciplinarian, but I would come to appreciate how difficult it was for mom to fill both parenting roles. So many vital qualities were instilled in my brothers and me in our young lives that I wouldn't trade for any amount of leniency. Money was very tight, so my mom went without much to care for us. She had significant dental problems, but chose to put our needs first, leaving her with lifelong dental issues. The only snacks in our house were big tubs of vanilla ice cream and, pop and popcorn. I longed for real snacks like chips or ding-dongs. One time I was at a friend's and spotted a bag of potato chips in her cupboard. After about an eternity, she finally offered me some. I tried not to drool as she opened the bag and then carefully placed three, count them, three chips on a paper towel. I stared down at my three chips and while I appreciated them, I could have eaten the entire bag. The lack of snacks explains my willingness to skip junior high school to sneak over to my friend Laura's with her and enjoy the coveted Twinkies her mom kept in a cookie jar. One winter night, we had run out of heating oil. Mom received her paycheck that day and oil was going to be delivered the next, but it was cold in the house. So she chopped up our coffee table and burned it in the fireplace, only to discover the cheap partial wood table provided more smoke than heat. While between jobs, my mom received one welfare check. As soon as she got her first paycheck, she marched directly to the welfare office and tried to repay the assistance. Of course, they looked at her as if she had lost her mind. Who attempts to pay back government assistance? Mom was just trying to do the right thing, but I was watching and learning. 
In those days, we had a few play clothes and even fewer clothes, which doubled as dress clothes. Fewer school clothes, which doubled as dress clothes. When we were to go with our dad, we eagerly changed into our school clothes and sat on the couch looking out the window in anticipation of his arrival. Many times he didn't show up and the disappointment was overwhelming. My dad was handsome, fun, and told tall tales. I loved him and hung on his every word, wishing I was daddy's little girl like my friend Kathy was to her father. Dad came from a family of 13 children. They were from Arkansas and my grandfather, whom everyone called Big D, was a big man. At least he seemed big to me and he had big in his name. He wore a Stetson cowboy hat and a belt buckle the size of a salad plate. Everything seemed big about Grandpa Big D, including his smile and the twinkle in his eye. I never knew my grandmother on my dad's side, as she died before I was born. Grandpa Big D worked hard and tried to finish raising the younger children and deal with some of the older ones still living at home. He was a loving and gentle soul who played the fiddle. It was hit and miss seeing my dad, so spending time with my Grandpa Big D was rare. The few times I did, I loved hearing his stories and listening to him play the fiddle. While he was somewhat of a stranger, I knew he loved me. My grandparents on my mom's side were a saving grace in my childhood. Grandpa was hilarious and fun, and Nana made bubble baths and gave the best back scratches. I remember more than once Grandpa taking me to the bakery to buy the six maple bars, my favorite, Nana had requested. She was a small woman without an ounce of fat on her, but to her credit, she was very disciplined. Grandpa, on the other hand, not so much. Plus, he was big boned like me. When we returned from the bakery, Nana would set one donut on each of two plates for Grandpa and me. Since neither one of us tore into those maple bars, I wonder if she ever suspected that Grandpa had purchased a dozen of those tasty treats and we each ate three of them on the way home. Grandpa was a surrogate father in many ways, driving my brothers to hockey practice at the crack of dawn or before. His face is the one I remember seeing first after my tonsillectomy. He taught us how to play dominoes and throw darts. Since we couldn't afford gymnastics class, he made me a floor exercise mat and balanced me. Grandpa had a special place in the hearts of all three of his grandchildren. He was the best man at my brother Daryl's wedding, and Brad was lucky enough to be named after Grandpa, Bradley Harold. I was a bit envious, but I doubt Valerie Harold was ever in the running. He worked at the meatpacking plant as well, but Grandpa was in purchasing, so his benefits included free hot dogs, and we ate a ton of them in those days. Too bad Grandpa didn't have a job at the filet mignon meatpacking plant. I am not a fan of hot dogs to this day, or the macaroni and cheese in the blue box that were a lifesaver at three for a dollar. At the beginning of each school year, Grandpa took us to buy shoes and a winter coat. He never used a credit card in favor of peeling off $20 bills from his money clip. I thought my grandpa was rich, and one time I told him so. He laughed and told me the real story of the fat money clip. Grandpa had grown up poor in a large family in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and he vowed that when he finally had some money, he would keep it in his pocket. I'm the middle child, and I'm 20 months younger than Daryl and 17 months older than Brad. I was particularly close to Brad growing up. So close were we that he didn't speak until he was around two and a half. I always knew what he needed and would, talk for, and would talk for him. It could have been he was secretly speaking to me, but more likely we didn't need words to communicate. When Brad finally spoke, it was a full sentence. When I was nine and Brad only eight, he went to live with our dad in Yakima. 
that was in East, that is in Eastern Washington on the other side of the Cascade Mountains from the Puget Sound area, which back then was like moving to Mars. At the end of the school year, we loaded Brad and his belongings, me, Daryl, and our German Shepherd, Czar, into my dad's car and headed to Yakima for the summer. My mom stood on the porch sobbing as we left. It helped that I spent the summer with Brad, but my life was never the same after he moved. My dad took good care of Brad, for which I'm grateful, but back then, I was merely sad. We had a brown leather photo album, which was one of our most treasured possessions. It had a big cutout on the front cover where you could prominently display a picture. The one in our album was a professional shot of an adorable little boy wearing chinos and a sweater. Although the photo was black and white, I knew his hair was jet black because he was my dad's son from his first wife and he looked just like him. While he is a few years older than I am, as the years went by, Donnie remained frozen in time. A four-year-old in the family photo album, a brother I had never met. At age 12, I finally met my 18-year-old brother, and I thought he was the coolest guy ever. I felt bad for Donnie spending years without his father, assuming the three kids who replaced him were living it up with father of the year. Spending time with my dad was sporadic at best, but when he moved to Yakima, we only saw him once or twice a year over school breaks or some summer vacations. We would make the trip by a Greyhound bus across the mountains. Back in those days, there was no freeway from the interstate into the Yakima Valley, so we traveled that stretch on a narrow, winding, two-lane highway with a deep drop on one side of the road. I held my breath as we went around each turn, praying the bus didn't careen off the road, plummeting us to certain death. To say my brother Daryl and I didn't get along well was an understatement. Two fiery redheads were not a great mix. One day we were fighting about something and we had just taken chicken pot pies out of the oven. He stuck a fork into his pie until it was nice and hot and branded my arm with it. I retaliated by chucking mine at him, but he was too quick. The pie hit the wall and left a streak of chicken, carrot, and pea filling as the container slid to the ground. I left the whole mess there counting down the time until my mom would be home and my brother would be in big trouble. Of course, she didn't see it my way when she walked in to find chicken pot pile all over the wall and the floor. Part of our relationship issues probably had to do with the fact that Daryl had to grow up so fast to be the man of the house at an early age. On more than one occasion, I remember Daryl being ready to fend off danger as he came flying into a room, hockey stick in hand. Thankfully, we are great friends now. Mom vowed we would never live in an apartment because she wanted us to have a yard to play in. She delivered on that promise, but it came at the cost of moving every couple of years to the next safe place she could afford. I made friends quickly, but it seemed I finally fit in when we had to move again. Each time I got the news, I would cry myself to sleep. The last house we lived in before my mom was remarried backed up to a cemetery. It was worn down and filthy, but with the help of my grandparents and my soon-to-be stepdad, we scrubbed, tore up the carpeting, painted, and made it home for the next two years. A chain-link fence was the only thing separating our yard from the cemetery. I had a few nightmares about that cemetery, but mainly tried to pretend it wasn't there. The one good thing about the cemetery house was that I had a good-sized room. I hung up sheets in one corner, simulating a separate room that I turned into a library. I even had a book checkout system, although I don't recall one book ever being loaned out from my library. I would also have my friends play school with me. And of course, I was the teacher. 
I'm sure they were thrilled to be playing school on the weekends, but I loved it. I wanted to be a teacher when I grew up. I did not become one in the traditional sense, but a teacher nonetheless. Karen and her family lived across the street from me, and she was a year older, which to an 11-year-old elementary schooler hanging out with a junior high kid is pretty cool. Karen's parents spent most of their time at the local tavern, and their house was very different from mine. It was filthy and filled with cigarette smoke. I was at Karen's one night when her mom fell asleep on the couch with a lit cigarette burning in the ashtray on the coffee table. I was a bit shocked when Karen picked up the cigarette and took a puff. She handed it to me and I nervously did the same. Considering the amount of coughing I did, her mom, who never opened her eyes, was more likely passed out than sleeping. That began my secret life of smoking, which didn't last long. While I thought it was cool to be smoking, the cigarettes Karen stole from her mom, I didn't care for the smoke in my lungs. What sealed the smoking deal was the day I asked my grandpa when he was going to quit smoking cigars, to which he replied, when you stop smoking cigarettes. By the time I stopped cigarettes, Karen's older brother had introduced me to marijuana, something I wish my grandpa had known about, because I probably would have quit that for him too. The first decade or so of my life was full of uncertainty and fear. It was also chock full of opportunities to use my courage muscles. I recall longing for a home with two loving parents. I couldn't get enough of television shows that depicted near-perfect families. I vowed one day I would have a family like those I had been watching. Somehow, some way, my life would matter. I was going to do something significant with my life. What that big something would, would be, I had no idea. From hot dogs to near stardom. My mom married Chips when I was 12 years old. He was the junior hockey coach in our area, and that was a big deal. Chips was the nickname he acquired when he was a professional hockey player, and it stuck. Mom's relationship with Chips propelled us to near stardom in our little hockey world. At the time we met Chips, he was a linesman, like a referee for you non-hockey fans, for the Seattle Totems, WHL hockey team, the last team he played on before retiring from professional hockey. Mom, Daryl, and I attended a few games, and we cheered when they announced Chips's name, resulting in some strange looks from the other fans because nobody cheers for officials in hockey. With my new dad came an additional brother, Rod, and finally what I'd always hoped for, a sister, Karen. They were a few years older, so it took some time to get to know one another, but we bonded like blood and have been standing as family ever since. I give my mom credit for working hard to make us into a real family. Life was on the upswing after mom married Chips. His professional hockey career preceded the NHL expansion where the real money was, so he worked at Rainier Brewery for decades after his retirement from hockey. The brewery had a big red R on the top of the building, which stood very close to Interstate 5 in Seattle. He wasn't exactly raking in the bucks, but since the brewery had much to do with our improved financial situation, my mom taught us to put a hand over our hearts when we drove past the big red R. We were definitely in better shape than we were pre-Chips, but funds were still minimal. Since Chips was the infamous junior hockey coach and Daryl played, we spent a great deal of time at the ice rink. I so wanted to be a gymnast, but there wasn't enough money for hockey and gymnastics. I was very disappointed, but hanging out at the rink with a bunch of boys was a close second to gymnastics. As soon as I had my driver's license, I worked after school and full-time on school breaks and over summers. My mom finally had enough money to have a little help around the house, so she hired me to do the weekly cleaning and grocery shopping. 
with my extra money, I bought, bought my clothing, cars, insurance, and personal items. I also bought pot. I drank beer, smoked pot, and had a great time partying, but I kept my act together. I was a responsible partier, I told myself. I was even in the honor society in high school, sitting in the photo with all the good kids. I made a lot of mistakes as a teenager and probably shouldn't have lived through some of them. I drove my car into a tree in my neighborhood, but thankfully the tree took the worst of it. I wrecked another car in eastern Washington, leaving that one in a junkyard. Two other accidents were as passengers. At 15, my friend Diane and I took a ride from the beach with our friend Mark and his girlfriend. We were on a windy four-lane road in his parents' car, and all was well until our friend swerved and hit the curb and then overcorrected speeding across all four lanes and launching us over the embankment, airborne, until we came to rest in a parking lot of the apartment complex. The car we were in flattened the top of another car on our descent into the parking lot. All four of us walked away without as much as a scratch. I guess God wasn't quite finished with me yet. The other time was in an open Jeep four-wheeling in the woods when the driver hit a root and the Jeep rolled down a steep hill spilling everyone that wasn't buckled in onto the forest floor in and amongst trees, roots, and rocks. Nobody, including yours truly, who had been tossed out had more than a bump or a scratch. Believe it or not, those years were some of my best, and I have many treasured memories. I may have made some foolish choices in those growing years, but I also learned a great deal about responsibility, friendship, and family. I learned to get back up every time I was down. I created an ability to focus on the positive and use humor to lighten the load. I was learning to overcome adversity. I was building courage. Marriage, motherhood, and other stuff. When I was 20 years old, I made the brilliant decision to get married. I know, I should have known better. I could try to come up with a compelling reason, but I still have no idea. I knew it was a bad idea because my soon-to-be husband was far from ready for marriage. He had proven so during the months of our engagement. Unfortunately, the wedding train had left the station and I allowed my ego to keep me from putting a stop to it. It would have served me well to listen to Chips. He was a quiet man, but he's the only one who tried to talk me out of getting married. With every step down the aisle, I had a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. I believe God was trying to warn me, but I kept putting one foot in front of the other rather than risking the embarrassment of being a runaway bride. I was far from ready for marriage, too. Only two months into my marriage, my husband cheated on me. It was a couple of weeks before Christmas, and I was heartbroken, staring at the carefully wrapped packages under our tree. I was embarrassed and humiliated, but didn't want to be a divorce statistic. Plus, I had become a Catholic like his family, and they frowned upon divorce in a big way. I stayed, but never fully trusted him after that and he gave me plenty of reason not to trust him. There would be many instances of my husband not coming home for hours at night or not at all. He was a good person but struggled with alcohol and drug addiction, something I would not fully understand until after our seven-year marriage ended. One day, I just stopped smoking pot and any other crazy drug I had tried. It was easy for me to make decisions like that. When I decided to stop anything, I stopped. It was hard for me to understand how others couldn't do the same. We bought our first house and worked hard to fix it up. Every inch of the place needed work, including the yard, which took two dumpsters full of yard waste to clean up and landscape. 
We were both very hardworking, but our marriage was not stable. Still, we stuck it out and planned for our first child. Jamie was my firstborn, and she was strong-willed, brilliant, and strong-willed. Wait, I already mentioned strong-willed, but it bears repeating. After all, I was reading Dr. Dobson's book, The Strong-Willed Child, when Jamie was a one-year-old. At the age of 11 months, Jamie started to walk. I worked part-time, and on my work days, Jamie stayed with a close family friend, Teresa. Knowing Jamie was about to start walking, I jokingly told Teresa, if she walks at your house, push her down. I got a call one day from Teresa informing me that it had happened. Jamie was walking. Thankfully, Teresa didn't push her down, but I was very sad I had missed the big moment. I arrived at Teresa's to discover she had not taken one or two steps, but that Jamie was walking. We tested her on linoleum, hardwood, carpeting, and with or without shoes. No matter what, Jamie could walk. That night, we attended a holiday party, and by the time we arrived, my parents and Teresa had delivered the big news. Everyone stopped and turned as we came in, waiting in anticipation of the Jamie walking show. Excitedly, I placed her on the ground and removed her coat and hat. She immediately plopped under her bottom. I pulled her back up, and down she went again. After a few repeats and raised eyebrows, we let it go. Jamie didn't take another step for two weeks. From that moment forward, she did life her way. I loved being a mom more than anything. The day Jamie was born was the best day of my life until Sean was born two years later. It was the day I understood unconditional love. It was the day I first strapped on my supermom cape, one I figured would come in handy for life's bumps and bruises. I had no idea how worn out the cape would become. My husband and I went through the motions of building a life together, but I knew something was not right. I loved Jamie and Sean in a way that could not be duplicated but there should have been stronger feelings for my husband. I had forgiven him long ago for cheating, but I had never really forgotten. My trust level was very low, and we were drifting apart. So I gave him the news and bought a do-it-yourself divorce kit. I played junior lawyer, creating all of the documents, including the parenting plan. We sat together in a courtroom full of couples duking it out over money or children and vowed never to do that to our kids. When it was our turn, we stood in front of the judge. He flipped through the documents, looking up at me with a surprised look in his face and asked, Did you do this yourself? Yes, I did. I answered, not sure if I should have admitted it. Great job, he said, as he stamped our packet. Much to the disapproval of my in-laws in the Catholic Church, at the age of 27, I was divorced. I was now a single mom of a three-year-old, Jamie, and a one-year-old, Sean. Thank you so much for listening to up to page 30 of my book, Still Standing, How I Overcame Guilt, Shame, Hopelessness, Devastating Loss, and Paralyzing Fear. In the next episode, I hope you'll join me because I'm going to read a little bit more and I'm going to talk about single motherhood and my being remarried to Rich and then how all hell broke loose with Jamie. Remember whatever it is you're going through, you're not alone chances are somebody is going through or has gone through the same thing you are, or at least something that you can relate to. We are all in this thing called life together. Life can come with very difficult circumstances and situations. We can meet with a very serious trauma or a series of traumas that can scar us for life. But we can use those scars. We can overcome whatever has happened to us. 
We must disrupt the trauma. We must replace it with hope. We must replace it with courage. Be sure to visit me at ValerieSilvera.com and please use any of the resources available there. I invite you to go to Facebook and join my Facebook group, The Trauma Disruptors. Again, go to ValerieSilvera.com. You can find everything there and even links to Facebook. I hope that whatever you're going through, you choose courage because your story matters. So live it courageously. 